Happy World Read Aloud Day from all of us here at PJ Library and Afternoons with Mimi. We hope you'll enjoy this lovely, nice and long playlist of Mimi reading your favorite PJ Library storybooks. Snuggle up and let me read you a little something. Sit by to it and settle right in for hugs, snuggles, stories, and more, and so many sweet things in store. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Afternoons with Mimi. Okay, snuggle up while I read you a little something. The Candlewick. By Jennifer Rosner, illustrated by Christina Swarner. It was said that Bela Lichten's family brightened the entire village because every home, from the midwife's stilt house perched at the river's edge to the baker's kitchen house set in the very center, shone with the light of Lichten's candles. The Lichten family worked hard at their candle-making business. While Bela's husband peddled in the markets, Bela worked at home, carefully dipping wicks of cotton into molten pots of bayberry and beeswax. She made beautiful braided candles to mark the end of the Sabbath, and thin, colorful candles to fill everyone's menorahs on the eight nights of Hanukkah. Whenever Bela used her colorful dyes, she thought of her friend Ruthie, who loved bright colors more than anyone else she knew. And since Ruthie was arriving today for a visit, Bela dipped candles with her richest blue. Ruthie walked along the riverbank on her way to the Lichten's house. She stopped to pick raspberries and to peer into a nest of swans. She gathered mushrooms for Bela's mother, and she even found a long white feather for little Aaron. In her satchel, she carried gifts for everyone, newly knitted mittens that she'd made by herself. When Ruthie arrived at Bela's, she knocked on the door. Hello? Anybody home? she called. No one answered. Hello? Ruthie called again. She knocked and knocked. Just then, Ruthie realized her mistake. Of course Bela couldn't hear her knocks or her calls. Bela was deaf. She used a hand language and wrote messages on Slate. She couldn't hear the sound of Ruthie's arrival. Ruthie walked around the house. She peered into the windows until she spotted Bela bending over a large pot simmering on the stove. The window was open and a curtain billowed in the breeze. Ruthie reached in and pulled the curtain to the side. Bela immediately noticed the shifting of the sunlight. When she saw Ruthie, she ran to the door to let her in. During her visit, Ruthie helped Bela's mother make a hearty mushroom soup. She tromped through the woods with Aaron looking for more feathers. With the yarn she always carried with her, Ruthie knit some new mittens for market. But best of all, Ruthie worked side by side with Bela, dipping candles. Ruthie was amazed by Bela's technique. By draping several long wicks over a single straight rod and lowering them together into the wax, Bela made her candles grow with perfect uniformity in color, length, and thickness. 
Most candles Ruthie saw in the village markets were mismatched and uneven. Where did you get this idea? Ruthie wrote on a slate. From you, Bela wrote. And she showed Ruthie her stash of candles, packaged in pairs with a single wick connecting them, just like Ruthie's mittens, which were tied together with string. Ruthie enjoyed a peaceful Sabbath with the Lichtens, and at nightfall on Saturday, when three stars shone in the sky, she had the honor of lighting one of Bela's beautiful Havdalah candles to mark the Sabbath's end. The following day, they resumed their work. Several times, Ruthie heard knocks at the door. She paused to write on a piece of slate. I hear someone at the door. Shall I see who it is? Each time, it was a villager wanting to buy candles. I came last week, but no one answered, one villager told Ruthie. I didn't think anyone was home. This was my third time. I was about to give up, said another. As she happily helped each customer, Ruthie worried about the many Bela had missed. To have customers walk away empty-handed was bad for the Lichten's business. The morning of Ruthie's return home, Bela handed her a big bundle of candles as a gift for her family. Ruthie thought again about how Bela could not hear anyone knocking on the door. How would she know when people came to buy candles? Bela's gift was wrapped in brown paper and tied with a bow made from candle wick. Suddenly, Ruthie had an idea. But she would need a whole spool of wick to try it out. Starting with a loop around the curtain in Bela's candle room, Ruthie ran a length of wick to the knocker on the Lichten's front door. When she banged the door knocker, it pulled the wick, which tugged at the candle room curtain. Bela saw the movement of the curtain and the change in sunlight. She rushed to the front door, her very own doorbell. Bela was delighted. She would now be able to hear her customers, and her visitors, too. She would be able to sell more of her candles from home. As Ruthie said goodbye to the Lichtens, Bela's mother invited Ruthie and her family to return in the winter for Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, a perfect occasion for both candles and mittens. Ruthie could hardly wait. Author's Note This story is based on the innovation of my daughter, Sophia. Unable to hear the doorbell when upstairs in her room, Sophia trails a string from her bedroom window to the front door. When someone tugs on the string, Sophia's window blinds move up and down. She knows visitors have arrived, and she heads downstairs to let them in. The End The Chocolate King Written by Michael Leventhal Illustrated by Laura Catalan Gamzulotova Even this is for the good. Nachumish Gamzu Talmud Masechet Tanit 21A. Benjamin loved chocolate. He knew more about chocolate than anyone in his town and more than most people in the whole of France. But there was one person who knew more than he did. His grandfather, Marco. Marco made the most incredible hot chocolate. It was a thick, dark drink with a crown of foam that wobbled and stuck to Benjamin's nose. Benjamin loved sitting with his grandfather and hearing the story of how he had learned to make it. It all began in Spain, where we used to live, Marco told Benjamin. 
an explorer who visited the faraway lands of America, taught me a brilliant Aztec recipe. I started selling hot chocolate to rich travelers at the port. I was busy from the minute the sun rose until the last ships sailed out of sight. They called me El Rey del Chocolate, the Chocolate King. But one day, Marco said sadly, we heard that the royal court wanted anyone who wasn't Catholic to leave the country, including Jewish people like us. We stayed in Spain for as long as we could, but finally we had to leave. We packed as much as possible and left late one night. You were only a baby, Benjamin, he said. We took as many cocoa beans as we could carry. Your mother said clothes were more useful, but I insisted that the beans were our family's treasure. When we arrived here in France, no one had ever seen or tried hot chocolate, Marco continued. I wanted us to be the first to show them how wonderful it tastes. Your father wasn't happy. He said people don't like trying new things and they wouldn't want our chocolate. But I was determined. Besides, making chocolate was the only skill I had. And that's how we started our life here. As Benjamin grew older, he wanted to help make the chocolate. But Marco would only let him watch, listen, and smell. Marco was strict with everyone. Not so hot, Andreas. It won't burn. I know what I'm doing. Stir it slowly, Bella. Treat it gently. Benjamin's grandma, Rena, showed him how to grind the roasted cocoa beans, but he was never allowed to touch. Every night, Benjamin went to bed dreaming of becoming a chocolate king, too. Marco and his family were very good at making chocolate, but Benjamin's father had been right. Very few people wanted to buy it. Chocolate was expensive, and even those who could afford it thought it was strange. Not for me. It's great. That's the worst glop I've ever seen. It looks like sticky mud. So, like most other Jewish people who lived in their town, Marco's family struggled to make money. I might be the chocolate king. But I'm the poorest king that France has ever seen, Marco sighed. Then, one morning, something extraordinary happened. Benjamin tried to sneak into the kitchen to watch his family at work, but his mother spotted him. Get on with your chores, she said. I want to watch Grandpa, he protested. Benjamin's mother chased after him. He stumbled backwards and crashed into the packed shelves. Plates... Pans, cans, and jars clattered to the floor. A large pot filled with chocolate toppled over and emptied all over Benjamin. It covered his hair, dribbled onto his face, and trickled down his back. Benjamin tumbled out of the kitchen and onto the cobbled street, straight into the path of a gleaming golden carriage. What on earth is that creature kicked in mud? demanded an angry passenger. It isn't mud, it's chocolate, protested Benjamin. My grandpa is the chocolate king. There was a pause. And then the carriage door flew open and a podgy pink-faced man stepped out. Really? he asked. I thought I was the only king here. Oh, your m m majesty, 
stammered Benjamin. I'm so sorry. I, I, I had no idea. The king of France inspected Benjamin from head to toe. And then the smell of chocolate slowly drifted to his nostrils and a smile spread across his face. Well, I must confess something does smell rather appealing. Let me taste this chocolate. Marco hurriedly prepared a cup of the family's finest hot chocolate, topped with a crown of wobbling foam. He rushed out of the house, covered in cocoa dust, and gingerly approached the royal carriage. He presented the cup to the king. The king took a sip, then another, and then he gulped the rest down. He passed the cup back to Marco and asked for more. Finally, four cups later, he pulled out a large silk handkerchief and wiped his mouth clean. Then he let out an enormous burp. This chocolate is divine, he said. I'll have ten flasks, please and I'll pay you handsomely. Benjamin danced around the kitchen, punching the air, while his grandpa was too shocked to move. His mother lifted his father into the air. Benjamin, your chocolate catastrophe has worked a miracle, Marco told his grandson. Now that we have royal approval, we'll be famous throughout France. Marco was right. Soon there were lines of customers eager to try the new drink. Orders began arriving from every corner of the country. Before long, the family could afford to buy the finest cocoa beans from around the world. They even started buying spices so they could add new flavors to their chocolate. And Marco taught Benjamin his secret recipe. Benjamin's dream had finally come true. Every day, as he helped to make the thick, dark drink with a crown of wobbly foam, Benjamin would proudly declare... Now I am a chocolate king, too. The end. Benji's Blanket Adapted by Miguel Gouveia and illustrated by Raquel Catalina Published by Green Bean Books When Benji was born, his granddad, who was a tailor, made a beautiful blanket for his cradle. Benji loved the blanket more than his granddad could have ever imagined. Long after he had learned to walk and talk, Benji still refused to part with it. He was never seen without his granddad's gift. One day, when his mother saw the wrinkled, dirty blanket, she said, Benji, it's time to throw this old thing away. I'll never throw it away, Benji replied. Granddad gave me this blanket. Now it's my cape, and I need it to fly. Here I go, he cried as he zoomed through the house. Later that day, Benji flew across the street to Granddad's shop and asked him if there was anything he could do to fix the blanket. Granddad picked it up, looked at it again and again, turned it around and around, and said, You know, Benji, I think we still have enough good material to make you a jacket. Granddad started to measure, cut, and sew. Measure, cut, and sew. Measure, cut, and sew. When he had finished... Benji had a new jacket that fit him like a glove. How Benji loved that jacket. He wore it every day. But like every child, Benji grew bigger, while his jacket, like any jacket, stayed the same size. It became much too small for him, and the more Benji wore it, the shabbier it got. One day, his mother looked at him and said, 
Benji, that jacket, it's going in the rag bag right now. No, it's not, Benji cried. This coat was made for me by Granddad. I'll talk to him and he'll know what to do. Benji took the jacket to his Granddad and asked him to save it from disappearing into his mother's big sack of old clothes. Granddad picked it up, looked at it again and again, turned it around and around, and said, You know, Benji, I think we still have enough good material here to make you a vest. Granddad started to measure, cut, and sew. Measure, cut, and sew. When he had finished, Benji put on his vest and smiled. But as time went on, Benji's vest, besides having acquired a big collection of stains, seemed to have more holes than fabric. When his mother saw the crumpled, moth-eaten garment, she said, Benji, that vest has done its job. We have to get rid of it. That's not true, Benji replied. Granddad can still turn it into something new. You'll see, he's the best tailor in the world. When Granddad opened the door, Benji gave him the vest without saying a word. Granddad smiled, picked it up, looked at it again and again, turned it around and around, and said, You know, Benji, I think we still have enough good material here to make you a scarf. So Granddad started to measure, cut, and sew. When he had finished, he put the scarf around Benji's neck. Time passed, and the scarf became so worn out that it barely resembled a scarf at all. One day, when Benji's mother saw the scarf all torn and tattered, she said, Benji, I'm sorry, but this really needs to be thrown away now. Don't even think about it, Benji protested. I know it doesn't look like it, but that's the scarf that Granddad made me. I'll talk to him, and he'll know what to do. Benji went to Granddad's shop and took what was left of the scarf out of his pocket. Carefully, Granddad picked it up, looked at it again and again, turned it around and around, and said, You know... I think we still have enough good material here to make you a button. And that is what he did. Benji pulled the button off his trousers and asked Grandad to sew the new one there so that everyone could see it. Not long afterwards, as he was getting ready for school, Benji realized that he had lost his button. He looked for it everywhere. In his shoes. In his trouser pockets. Under his rug but there was no sign of it anywhere. Benji, said his mother, what can Granddad do with nothing? I'm not sure, Benji replied sadly, but Granddad always knows what to do. This time, Granddad said nothing when Benji told him what had happened. Benji was puzzled, but he waited patiently. He recognized the look on Granddad's face. He could see that Grandad was once again measuring, cutting, and sewing in his mind, thinking about what to do. Soon, Grandad broke the silence and said, You know, Benji, maybe that button was not the end after all. I think we still have enough good material here to make a story. Grandad gave Benji a pencil and a notepad. Together, they sat down to write. Their story started like this. When Benji was born, his granddad, who was a tailor, made a beautiful blanket for his cradle. The end. Yitzi the Trusty Tractor. Written by Naomi Shulman. Illustrated by Shelley Cuvillon. 
Farmer Sarah's veggies were delicious and nutritious. She always rode her trusty tractor, Yitzi. Together, they did the hard, fun work of farming. I couldn't do it without my trusty Yitzi, Sarah always said. Yitzi wasn't just trusty, he was also a little musty and a little rusty. But Sarah knew when to change his oil. She knew how to handle his clutch. She knew the right way to switch his gears. We're a great team, Sarah said. Rrr, Yitzi answered. Sarah and Yitzi did their hard fun work every single day, except on Shabbat. Every Friday evening, Yitzi powered down his headlights just as Sarah was about to light candles. Then Sarah sipped a little grape juice as Yitzi sipped a little gasoline. Sarah munched challah as she sat on Yitzi's hood, and they both watched the darkening sky. Shabbat shalom, Sarah said, giving Yitzi a pat. On Saturday, Sarah and Yitzi picnicked under the trees and took naps by the river. Sarah would read books out loud to Yitzi. When three stars appeared in the night sky, Shabbat was over, and Sarah and Yitzi were ready for another week of hard, fun work. But as hard as they both worked, Sarah had trouble paying all of her bills. Eventually, a very sad day came. Sarah couldn't afford Yitzi's gasoline. She knew what she had to do. I'm so sorry, Yitzi, Sarah said tearfully. I'll make sure you go to a good home. Rrrr, Yitzi answered understandingly. Sarah's neighbor, Farmer Ruthie, noticed the sign. She'd always wished her veggies could be as delicious and nutritious as Sarah's. Maybe Yitzi could help, she thought. I'm here to buy your tractor, she said. You'll have to change his oil every month, Sarah told Ruthie. I will, Ruthie agreed. And switch his gears slowly, Sarah said. I will, Ruthie agreed. And handle his clutch gently, the way I do, Sarah said. I'll do everything the way you do, Ruthie promised. Sarah knew Ruthie would give Yitzi a good home. Ruthie and Yitzi worked all week long in Ruthie's field, and trusty Yitzi worked just as hard as ever. Meanwhile, Sarah missed Yitzi and their hard, fun work. Yitzi missed Sarah, too. When Friday evening came, Ruthie and Yitzi were motoring down the fields. Suddenly, Yitzi's engine stopped. What's wrong, Yitzi? Ruthie asked. Are you too musty and rusty to keep going? Yitzi didn't answer. Ruthie looked at all the gauges on Yitzi's dashboard. Everything seemed okay. I don't get it, Yitzi, she said. Why did you stop working? Yitzi still didn't answer. He powered down his headlights and rested all night. And the next morning, Yitzi kept resting. Ruthie marched across the field to Sarah's farm. Your tractor isn't working, she complained. Worried, Sarah ran over to Ruthie's field. But when Sarah got there, Yitzi looked fine and very happy to see her. Sarah hugged Yitzi and then returned to Ruthie. I know what's going on, she said. It's Shabbat. So, demanded Ruthie. He's resting, Sarah explained. That's what Yitzi and I do every Shabbat. He'll work even better for you tomorrow. You'll see. Sure enough, Yitzi rested until Saturday night when three stars appeared in the sky. Then his headlights popped back on. Rrr, he said, 
ready to start working again, and Ruthie found that he did, indeed, work even harder the next day. She also realized just how much Yitzi had been missing Sarah. So, Ruthie and Sarah decided they would share trusty Yitzi. He worked in Ruthie's field one day, and Sarah's the next. Then Sarah and Ruthie sold their delicious, nutritious veggies at the same table at the farmer's market. When they worked together, the work was less hard and more fun, and now they could both pay their bills. <laughs> We're a great team, Sarah and Ruthie said happily. Yitzi agreed. And every Shabbat, the three of them rested together. The end. Until the Blueberries Grow Written by Jennifer Wolf Cam Illustrated by Sally Walker Published by PJ Publishing Ben's great-grandpa Zadie was moving away. Ben, Zadie said, this house doesn't fit me anymore. I need a smaller space. Ben took Zadie's hand. Zadie, stay until the blueberries grow. Zadie squeezed Ben's hand. I can stay in this big house a little longer, he said, until the blueberries grow. The summer grass tickled Ben and Zadie's feet. They plucked fat blueberries from the bushes and squished them between their fingers. They popped the blueberries into their mouths, and the juice dribbled down their chins. It's hot as horseradish out here, said Zadie. Ben poured Zadie a glass of water. Zadie, stay until the grapes are ripe. Zadie drank the water. The autumn winds will cool things down. I'll stay until the grapes are ripe. Ben and Zadie draped bunches of grapes around the sukkah. Others, they boiled in pots until the kitchen smelled of sweet jelly. Zadie made Ben a jelly sandwich. Then they stomped through crisp autumn leaves. So many leaves, said Zadie. What will we do with them all? Ben gathered an armful. Zadie, stay until the snow falls. Mm, there's no yard work in the winter, Zadie said. I'll stay until the snow falls. A downy blanket of snow covered Zadie's yard. Ben and Zadie tasted tingly snowflakes, and Ben rolled down the hill until he was dizzy. Zadie wrapped Ben in a quilt and made him a mug of hot chocolate. They lit the Hanukkah and munched latkes and jelly donuts. This is fun, said Zadie, but winter in this big house is hard on these old bones. Ben placed a sweater on Zadie's shoulders, and they sat together beside the glowing candles. Zadie, stay until the flowers bloom. The spring sun will warm things up, said Zadie. I'll stay until the flowers bloom. Ben and Zadie picked tulips and placed them on the Seder table. Ben found the afikoman in the lilac bushes. After the Seder, Ben and Zadie curled up under the magnolia tree and the gentle spring breeze rocked them to sleep. That night, Zadie held on to the railing. This staircase is very tall. Ben took Zadie's hand. Stay. Zadie squeezed Ben's hand. It's time for me to move to my new home, Ben. But 
When we're not together, think of plucking blueberries from the bushes and the juice dribbling down our chins. Pots of boiling grapes and jelly sandwiches in the sukkah. A warm quilt with hot chocolate and the light of the Hanukkah. Tulips and the afikoman and a nap under the magnolia tree. And, Zadie wrapped his arms around Ben, visit me in my new home. When Zadie moved, Ben visited. Such a fancy new home, Ben, said Zadie. It's like a hotel. Ben placed a basket on Zadie's lap. For you. Oh, blueberries. Thank you. Zadie popped a blueberry into his mouth. Then another. Ben did the same. Stay until we eat all of the blueberries, said Zadie. Yes, Zadie, said Ben. I'll stay. The end. Saturdays are special. Written by Chris Barish. Illustrated by Abigail Marble. Published by PJ Publishing. Saturdays are special. They're my most splendid days. At my house, Shabbat's different in lots of happy ways. We love our backyard garden. Ema's veggies are the best. We don't hoe or weed today, though. We give the earth a rest. Abba doesn't mow the lawn or trim our big oak tree. On Shabbat, I know my daddy will have time to play with me. Sometimes we walk to synagogue in the light, bright morning sun. Rabbi Mark tells Torah stories. The songs we sing are fun. After lunch, my family snuggles. Tova cuddles with us, too. I never, ever fall asleep, but both my parents do. I'm happy when they wake up from their weekly Shabbat snooze. Then Abba reads a book to me while Ima reads the news. I know Shabbat is ending when three stars shine in the sky. It's time to start another week, and with Shabbat, goodbye. On the table sits a special cup of wine that Abba blessed. We pass around sweet spices. I think cloves smell the best. See the glowing braided candle and its yellow-orange light? I peek between my fingers at the warm Havdala sight. Ima holds my hand to help with a job that's always mine. I put out the fancy candle by dipping it in wine. In my bed, under soft covers, warm kisses brush my cheek. I hear, sleep tight, Shavuotov. Let's have a fine new week. The End The Mouse Who Danced the Hora Written by Pamela Mayer Illustrated by Christine Davigny Published by PJ Publishing In a teeny tiny hole in the wall of the social hall at Temple Shalom, there lives a mouse. Her name is Tilly Mouskovitz. When Tilly hears music, she peeks out at the door of her mouse house. Music means a celebration at Temple Shalom's social hall. A wedding reception? How nice! Tilly says. May the bride and groom know nothing but happiness. Tilly's whiskers twitch as the band plays her favorite song. 
Such nice music. Now everyone will dance the hora. If only Tilly could join the circle and dance the hora too, just as the people do at many Temple Shalom celebrations. But for a mouse, it's not, Tilly says. Stepping forward with the left foot towards the right and then forward with the right foot to match, the people turn this way and that as they dance in a large circle. Tilly dances too, singing in her wee mouse voice. The dancers stand in place and clap their hands. Tilly scurries forward and claps her paws together too. Two chairs are carried into the center of the circle, one for the bride, one for the groom. The chairs are lifted up high. Tilly giggles. <laughs> it is a mitzvah, a good deed to make the bride and groom happy on their wedding day. The bride and groom sway in their chairs. The people dance around them. The band plays, and Tilly scampers right into the horror circle. The bride and groom, still seated in their chairs, are brought back down to the floor. Everyone else runs away. <gasps> Tilly looks at the bride and groom. The bride and groom look back at Tilly. Stepping forward with her left paw, Tilly brings her right paw to match. She steps behind with her left paw and again brings the right to match. Tilly turns this way and that. This little mouse is dancing the horror, the groom says. The bride smiles. She is. Standing as one, the bride and groom push away their chairs. They form a circle around Tilly and dance. Tilly dances too. The musicians play the horror song once more. Hava Nagila Hava Nagila Hava Nagila Let us rejoice, let us rejoice, let us rejoice. One by one, then two by two, the wedding guests return to the dance floor. Venishmeha and be glad. When the song ends, Tilly bows low. She hears a cheer and then another as everyone claps for her. Tilly's whiskers twitch with happiness. <sighs> so much joy, such celebration. How nice it is to dance the hora. The tired little mouse hurries home. She is asleep as soon as her head touches the pillow. <sniffs> Tilly wakes in the middle of the night. She yawns and stretches. <gasps> Temple Shalom is dark and quiet. The wedding ended long ago. Tilly's tummy growls. So maybe I'll find a crumb of challah, a morsel of cheese left over. Right outside her door is a surprise. A teeny, tiny slice of wedding cake, just the right size. Next to it is a note which reads, To the mouse who danced the hora, from the bride and groom. The End <laughs>